Welcome back to another episode of the Zach Moore Show. Uh, as always, you can support the podcast by going to Amazon.com and purchasing Caponomics, Building Super Bowl Champions. That's my book. It breaks down how past champions have been built, the you know the manner with which the roster is constructed through the salary cap, and just goes through historical data and and basically the objective of the game and, and sorts out how teams go about accomplishing the objective on a per game basis, on a season basis, and with what eventually leads to the opportunity to win a Super Bowl. So uh, people like it. Uh, if you like if you like what I'm about to talk about in this podcast, I'm sure you will too. If you like football at all, I'm sure you will. If you like football business, I mean, it's right up your alley. So um, it's in the money ball sort of vein of, of, you know, approach to analyzing the game. And, um, you know, it is not money ball. Uh, That that is, uh, you know, money ball is is the the industry standard on this kind of thing. But uh, I do my best at, you know, doing it for football, explaining the money ball aspect of football. So you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Zach Moore NFL, Zach with a K. And another way to support the podcast is to go to go.rallyup.com slash forgotten to support Justin Wren's Fight for the Forgotten charity. Um, his charity helps pygmies in the Congo and now I, I believe also in Uganda is where the next next you know next initiative is going to be. And uh, you know, he, he's an incredible person, um, you know, really just blessing. Uh, a, an absolute blessing to these people. And uh, I teamed up with the, the Jiu-Jitsu Planner, uh, a buddy of mine at 10th Planet Austin at Onnit Gym MMA. Um, he started the Jiu-Jitsu Planner as a means for tracking progress and tracking your Jiu-Jitsu and really you know, getting into the main lessons of the day and you know, just tracking it all. And, and it's helped me further understand the game and understand my strategy when I, when I am doing Jiu-Jitsu. So without further ado, getting into the topics of today's podcast is some is a list that I've been working on for a few weeks and and a list that I actually want to put out there and and see if anyone else has any any sort of any sort of additions to it because uh, I'm sure there there are plenty of additions that can be made that I'm that I'm overlooking so the, the question is how much does a player sign for and why in the NFL and these are obviously talking about veteran players uh, rookie contract players are slotted in at, at the low number that they're they're given Routinely, um, you know, routinely meaning by, by nature, uh, they're I go into it too often, but they're 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 undervalued for what they what their production is. So when we're talking about veterans, the first thing I wrote down was team leverage. You know, how much do the players sign for and why? Number one, team leverage. If the player is under contract and how many franchise tags the team has um, to use on him. For example, in the you know Ezekiel Elliott sort of case. He um, he was under contract. The team still had two franchise tags that they could threaten him with. Same with Odell Beckham. Um, he was under contract the year prior. So that's what kind of puts a cap on some of these guys' earnings. And, you know, whatever contract they're on sort of puts a cap on it. And then you add the franchise tag. Same with Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas wasn't able to get up to that $22 million number that he was trying to get to because... He was under contract for one more year, and then on top of that, there's two more years. And he was under contract on a second-round rookie draft uh, selection. He was dra- drafted in the second round, so second-round contract. And with that second-round contract, he was, you know, ma- I think he was slated to make— I wrote it—I had an article on Over the Cap, if you want to search Over the Cap Michael Thomas, and 
I discussed this this contract at length. But with with Michael Thomas, uh, he was about one point nine million or something for this year because of performance incentives. And then he had two years uh, under threat of franchise tag, and I believe that he would have hit free agency at the age of 28 if he was under franchise tag. So the team leverage is really strong, not only in the amount of money they have, but also in the way that they're able to um, use the franchise tag to threaten that he won't get to free agency until a year, until a year, an age that is past his prime. 28 years old, if you're a wide receiver, you don't want to hit free agency at 28 because that puts you in a position where where you're perceived as to be almost 30 and you're a wide receiver and teams kind of know that the likelihood of you producing past that is it, it runs into issues it's sincerely runs into issues um des bryant demarius thomas uh jeremy macklin there was another guy on that list but there was uh, in around 2015 there were a bunch of guys who signed for pretty pretty big contracts uh, Macklin was a bit cheaper than the rest of them. But through that signing, you saw that a lot of these guys were released from those contracts prior to their completion. So um, that just really opens us up to the, to the realization that, you know, running backs aren't the only position that teams are looking to avoid investing in past a certain age. Um, you know, wide receivers start to see a drop-off. They're also heavily dependent on the quarterback. So if there's a quarterback change um, or any sort of issue like that, you know, so there's there's just a lot that goes into it, right? And and here in describing this one issue, team leverage, we get into a bunch of other issues that come into uh, impacting a player's value and what he's able to produce on the field. So next, um, player leverage: Is he a free agent? Is he holding out? And does the team need him? Um, in Ezekiel Elliott's case, he forced the Cowboys' hand. I think that he was. I've said this before on here that I think that he was. Um, Sort of near the back of the line in terms, of, they have a lot of a lot of contra, a lot of guys coming up on new contracts. Byron Jones, Dak Prescott, Amari Cooper, uh, Lel Collins signed his deal. Uh, I think that's everyone. Those three guys are the big ones, right? A quarterback, a cornerback, and a wide receiver. Three positions that you would put if you were a GM, you would say, "I got to figure out how to re-sign these guys before I worry about my running back." But Ezekiel Elliott held out this season, which was a in, in retrospect, a brilliant move by him and his agent because it put him at the front of the line and he had the leverage to do that. On the other hand, it wasn't a brilliant move for Melvin Gordon to do the same because they already had a guy on their roster in Austin Eckler who the team could prove, and it's also not the Dallas Cowboys as well. Let's be let's be uh, real about that. The Los Angeles Chargers don't have the same fan base that the Dallas Cowboys have. So the idea of going through the season without Ezekiel Elliott when Cowboys fans rightfully have a belief that they might be in a position to compete for a championship is not something that's going to work out for, you know, Jerry Jones and, and, and for an avoidance of, of paying Elliott. So from a player leverage standpoint, they played that situation right. And it's, it's an important case study to look at Ezekiel Elliott versus Melvin Gordon from a variety of standpoints, not just production on the field, but also the things that we talk about with, with – um, with uh, you know, with the business behind it, the Cowboys versus the Chargers, right? So, and then player leverage: Is he a free agent? If you're a free agent, you're in a position where you're going to be um, you're going to be in a, in a spot where you get you know you ha you have all the leverage for once in your career. 
you're 26, 27, 28 years old. Hopefully you're 26. You're probably not. Um, you have a leverage. And something I, there's a piece that just came out on CNBC that I was a part of. Um, it is titled, it is titled, Why NBA Players Out-Earn Other U.S. Athletes. And it was, uh, it's on YouTube. It's on CNBC.com. Um, and one of the key things in that is that NBA players hit hit the league, the top guys hit the league at 19 years old. Zion Williamson, 19 years old. He's going to hit free agency at 24. Kyler Murray, the first-round pick in this year's draft in the NFL, is um, going to hit free agency at uh, 27 years old. And he's a quarterback, so doesn't have the same impact on him, but the guy picked right behind him, Nick Bosa, not Joey. Joey's the older brother, right? Um, Nick Bosa is going to be 27 years old as well. So the player leverage from that scenario, um, you know, there is there's an issue with player ages, and it's something that I, I go into on this article I'm currently writing for Over the Cap and that I'll share here as well. Um, you know, I kind of went on a rant about NFL owners being in this position where they don't ever have to take risk uh, in terms of players. They get to draft players to these cheap contracts. They get a free college. It's kind of all spurred on by the, what happened in California last week in terms of in terms of the uh, the players now being able to get endorsement deals. And then, of course, Tim Tebow. I won't even get into it, but Tebow, I don't know what he's yelling about. I don't know what he's upset about. Uh, I'm actually quite curious as to finding out how much the University of Florida paid him to come to Florida or how much the University of Florida um, is currently paying him. You know, or how much he has invested in what are what are his incentives to really be against players getting endorsement deals? I'm very interested in that because I, without naming anybody's name, there's a very prominent guy in the NFL currently today who went to a crappy SEC school, and he, uh, from from what I understand, he allegedly got paid three hundred thousand dollars to go to one of the worst SEC programs in the SEC. So. Uh, we're, we're pretending that guys aren't getting paid, which is ridiculous. But anyway, the NFL gets a free minor league, and they don't have to invest in 18, 19-year-old guys, which is, a, which is a tough investment. I'm reading this book, Soccernomics. It's a, it's, it's a caponomics type of book for soccer. It's a, a money ball type of book for soccer. It's brilliant, great writing, two co-authors. Uh, I do not, one of their names is Simon Cooper. Uh, the other is Stefan, and I'm not going to try and pronounce his last name without it in front of me. Um, and they get into, you know, the investment, the age, proper age of investing. And it's, it's something that I've seen across the spectrum. And uh, you want to invest in players when they're 22, 23 years old. So NFL teams just get to invest in them at a cheap rate. So do all the other leagues. So it's a, it's a point that I'm going to continue digging into is, is the money, the, 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 the variables that surround player value. There's so many variables that surround player value. Age being a key one of them, it's on this list. How do how much does the player sign for, and why? Age is a key one on this list, and um, you know, the NFL doesn't have to invest in eighteen year olds, which is a terrible investment because you don't get good data off of a high school kid and his high school performance. You don't know how he's going to continue to develop into college. Uh, I just heard Aaron Rodgers was like five ten coming out of high school, went to JUCO, continued growing, and now he's Aaron Rodgers. So. You know, you you don't you, the guys could develop in one of two ways. They could keep going or they can go down. So there's a lot that goes into um, you know the leverage and the age and all that kind of thing. So next on this list, market contract comparables at the position. 
Uh, that's an obvious one. You know, when, when we're looking at player contracts, um, the most obvious thing that we look at is what do other players at his position make? What does their production look like? Which is another thing on this list, which is we're looking at past plus future production. So how does that look on the list? Um, so all that goes into the market and understanding his market value. Then there's market forces. And one of those is, you know, the other players available in the free agency and the draft. So if you're, you know, defensive end and there's a ton of good defensive ends in the draft, unless you're that top guy, I think we kind of saw an example of this this, off se- this offseason with Trey Flowers. He got, uh, I believe it was $18 million a year, 17 or $18 million a year. I think it was 18. And... Um, he didn't get that $22 million a year that Aaron Donald, the upwards of $22 million a year that Khalil Mack and Aaron Donald saw when they were extended. Uh, so he, he had more leverage, but he didn't get more money than them or as much money as them because he's not as good a player. And watch, he'll be, you know, three, four years in Detroit. Uh, Drew, uh, Drew, who, who was I about to say? Drew Bloodsoe? Um, Bill Belichick will bring him back when he's 31 years old, sign him for $3 million, $4 million, at that point, probably, you know, eight million dollars over two, you know, per year over two years. Get him at a reasonable rate for a guy who's going to produce fifty pressures for him at thirty-one years old. So that's another thing about age is that some of these guys don't have leverage, but they end up going to places and being a great value because now they've they've come out of this position where, and maybe that's a point of focus to look at is really understanding how a player performs into his 30s based on his past production. It would be an important thing for any agent, any team to understand because it's something, it's a strategy that the Patriots have been using to success quite quite well. Uh, letting guys go, make more money elsewhere, bringing them back when they're at a discount because now uh, Jamie Collins has been at a discount for them and is essentially, I think he's only making $3 million on a one-year deal this year. And this is after he went out to, he got traded to Cleveland and, and made a bunch of money there, right? So, Things to consider. And then um, market forces, you know, got into that. Future injury risk, which can be based on past injury history. This is an important one. If a guy is consistently injured, uh, thinking of an example uh, right now, um, Keanu Neal. Keanu Neal is maybe one of the best safeties in the NFL. Um, but Keanu Neal has played in... Four games over the last two seasons now, and that's all he's going to play over these two seasons. And, and he's one of he's one of the best strong safeties in the NFL, bar none, unequivocally, or not strong safeties, free safeties. I'm sorry, one of the best safeties in the NFL. I, I, I got confused by the strong safety because he had 113 tackles. He's just a safety, right? I won't get into that. I, I don't watch the Falcons' defense enough to, to really get into what he's done. And it's been two years since we've seen what he's done on the field as well. Um, but he had 105 combined tackles in his rookie year, uh, 2016, 113 in 2017. Clearly a top-of-the-line player, but he tore his ACL last year. He tore his Achilles this year, which may have partially been a symptom of coming back from a torn ACL, which is, you know, this is just kind of the horrible stuff that, that you hate to see happen to anyone, but there's always a case or two like this in the league. And then you see future injury risk being part of why he pl- what he signs for and why. And he's one of those guys where, you know, past injury risk is, is going to severely impact his, his, uh, his uh, you know, his market value. So next, draft position. So draft position is, 
a unique one in that some guys get paid off of where they were drafted four or five years ago rather than who they are as a player in that day. So, you know, we see it pretty often with a late-round pick. You know, guy of the... Say we got the... Let's, let's set up a scenario. Say we got two guys. One of them was a first-round pick. The other was a fifth-round pick. They had the same exact production over the course of five years. So let's just make it an easy... Uh, over the course of four years. Let's make it an easy example. And in that... The guy who was drafted in the first round is going to be given the benefit of the doubt, whether they, you know, whether it was good or bad, uh, whether they both performed at a high level or a low level. He's going to get the higher probability of the benefit of the doubt than the the later round guy, and that's just it's, it's a fact that Jason and I at Over the Cap have seen quite often. And um, I can't think of a, an example off the top of my head right now, but but one example, a way to look at it would be if a guy was a first round pick say a first-round pick at left tackle, he's going to get a bunch of different chances to succeed. A first-round pick at quarterback, in a lot of cases, will get a fair amount of cases uh, chances to succeed. Um, you know, that that's one that um, it doesn't make sense. It makes sense in some perspective, but when you consider how often NFL teams strike out in the draft, it doesn't make sense that anyone would care what someone was drafted at four years ago. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's another reason for how much a player signs for and why. Another one, optics or the fan reaction. And I think that the Ezekiel Elliott example is a really good one of that. The uh, next one is scheme fit. How does he fit into what the team's trying to do on the field? You know, um, one team might pay a little bit more and find a little bit more value out of this player than the other team, right? So, so um, you know, scheme fit's an important one. For instance... Something that I've been noticing that I have to address the last few weeks, and I'll, I'll, I'll do it in another podcast, I want to keep this one quick, um, is, is getting into how valuable the running game is because I'm an analytics guy, I'm reading all the, you know, I, I, I look toward analytics as, an, as something that adds to my contract knowledge. But then there's also the scouting knowledge that I have to understand as well. The the watching the game, understanding the you know, understanding it on my own terms, right? But from an analytics perspective, I'm all in on you know some of the stuff they say about passing. Uh, I I look I love expected points added. I think that's an important stat. And from an expected points added perspective, the average run play is minus zero point four. Uh, I'm sorry. Minus 0.04, so it's just a slightly negative play. The average pass play, I believe, is 0.04. So like, right? So it's, there's one's a negative, one's a positive. The average play action pass, again, off the top of my head, and I think these are all these are right. I, I just always like to preface that, preface things with that because I, I don't want you to think that you know I don't want to get called on being wrong, and, and I'm just going off the top of my head, and and I think that the pl- average play action, and I'm pretty sure because I wrote it down. Um, is 0.17, so expected points added, which is why play action is such a valuable play. And from that perspective, the average running play is, is not a positive play. It's going gonna, it's gonna to lead toward you being less likely to score. But it's important to understand that's the average play, and it's important to understand that what we saw in the Colts game last night against Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs was they were able to take the ball out of his hands for the entire second half via the running game. And there's, there's some added value out of that that we must understand. Whether it's, and this is important, it's, it's all about, the scheme fit is also about where the team stands as a whole. 
Um, you look at the Colts. The Colts are heavily reliant on the running game right now. They're relying on defense. And in that, they, um, you know, having Marlon Mack back there and, and, and Naheem Hines and Jordan Wilkins, uh, the performance last night, I mean, there was, here we go. They had 180 rushing yards. And, you know, Hines had 46 receiving yards. Mack had 16 so there was, it wasn't just that they ran the ball well. It was that it was the short passing game, which they're essentially building their offense around with Jacoby Brissett is the short passing game because they don't, they're, they're trying to dink and dunk their way to success. And, and they just beat arguably, you know, by, by many, arguably the best team in the NFL right now. Other than, I mean, the, the conversation, right, is between the Patriots and the Chiefs right now. Um, is anyone else in that ballpark? Um you could argue the Cowboys are up there, but they just got the the score was much different than the you know they they lost by ten to Green Bay yesterday, but they they got thoroughly beaten in the first half, and um, you know came back later. But you know I'm looking at the teams right now. I mean, top three in the NFL right now are you've got the Chiefs, you've got the Patriots, maybe add the Cowboys. If Drew Brees is healthy, maybe you throw the Saints in there. The Rams are up there, right? I mean, the Rams are in that ballpark. So we've got we've got quite a few. You know what the Rams? Yeah, the Rams. The Rams lost yesterday. To, uh, yesterday to Seattle too. So or not yesterday? That was that was Thursday night. Um, Seattle's in that conversation, right? So Seattle, L.A. We've got maybe five teams in the NFL that are up there, and and the Colts went into. Kansas City and Arrowhead and beat them uh, via this rushing strategy. So I think from a scheme fit perspective, it's and it's kind of becoming clear that this is part of what the Cowboys are doing. They're, that's why they invested this money in Ezekiel Elliott, which also raises a whole other concern about giving money to Gurley and giving money to Elliott, is that if you don't have a rookie contract quarterback, that's a heavy investment in your running back. Do you really believe in your quarterback if you're – putting this much money into running backs? I mean, it's a, it's a very important question to ask yourself. It's a very important thing to say, am I going to spend a lot of money on this quarterback considering the price of, you know, uh, considering what I just invested in running back? I mean, am I, am I really, point being, am I really that confident in this quarterback if I'm paying this kind of money to a running back? And that, that's a question you got to ask yourself before you shell out the big bucks. And that's part of what, the big quarterback bucks because everyone's getting big bucks, but quarterback quarterback money is different. So, from a scheme fit perspective, that's a question that you raise when you talk about running backs, and it's also a question you raise about team roster stage, which is another piece of player player value. Is are they a Super Bowl contender or are they on the rebuild? Another aspect of that is do they have a rookie contract quarterback? Because that's another aspect of this roster stage. It's like it's where where do you stand in terms of um. In terms of how your likelihood of success moving forward in this current model of where your roster stands, you know that that if you're in a, in a if you're in a Super Bowl window and you've got extra cap space and you pretty much solidified your roster, going out and signing a, a top flight defensive end is a pretty good investment, right? But if you're if you're the Miami Dolphins with Ryan Tannehill and Mike Tannenbaum, right? I mean, this is always the example I come back to is that going out and spending that kind of money on Nanamakan Sue isn't really going to put you in a position where you're doing anything but going 8-8, eight and eight, 
Um, and, you know, that's an important part of the roster stage conversation. And, and, and so it's Super Bowl contender. Are you on the rebuild? You know, what kind of value are you getting out of the most expensive positions? Quarterback, wide receiver, defensive end, any, any sort of pass rusher, pass coverage guy, pass catcher, right? So n- another reason on this list is how much the player signs for and why. Is player reputation with coaches and teammates? Is he a leader, work ethic, etc.? That's kind of self-explanatory, but it's something that we don't get into often in analytics or on this podcast enough. Um, I mean, you've been on if you've been on any teams, you've been on good teams, you've been on bad teams, you've been on teams with great leadership, you've been on teams with bad leadership. I had this conversation quite often with my coach at at Tenth Planet. Was that watching the culture he's built at Tenth Planet Austin is really interesting to me to see it in another sport. Because I had really good culture at the high school level. I had a really good culture my freshman year at URI with our head coach, Darren Rizzi, who's currently with the Saints as their special teams coordinator. Great coach, really you know, solid dude, and a guy that you really understood where he stood and from a leadership perspective um, provided you with a basis for understanding leadership um, understanding what was expected. The next coach didn't create a good culture. And when you see those, those various various phases of organizations, leadership is a very important quality. And it's one that we often gloss over, but from a how much players stand, how much players sign for perspective, why, why does Bill Belichick go out and sign Brandon Bolden for uh, about $2 million a year? Well, part of it's special teams, part of it's his leadership, part of it's him being a Patriots guy. Um, you know, that these are the kind of small smaller signings that may happen of veterans, and that's why Belichick, part of why he goes with a lot of veterans and um, why he builds his roster with a lot of veterans is that he's found that there there's a lot of cheap veterans out there that provide special teams help, leadership, um, just, you know, also allow him to change strategies on a weekly basis and put himself in position, put his team in a position to take advantage of whatever issues the op- opponent might have. So it, it makes him very versatile and it provides the leadership in the organization that, that helps push them towards these championships on a year-in, year-out basis. Another example, and the last one uh, that I've written down and is I'm going to put all this on overthecap.com so that if you want to go there and check out the list in full, you can see it there and... The last one is, how does he play against top competition? And I just saw something yesterday about Dak Prescott that I retweeted. And it's it, I retweeted it because, you know, he is... It's not that he... One second. I think he's a good quarterback, right? Uh, I, but we're having this conversation about, are you going to pay him? And Dan Orlovsky tweeted, I believe Dak has entered the combo of doesn't matter how you play versus bad teams, but what you do versus winning good teams. Since 2017, Dak versus winning teams. 5-9, 23 touchdowns, 18 turnovers, 40 sacks. Yesterday versus Green Bay, he threw for zero yards on third down. Zero. <laughs> Again, zero. Um, and, and his conclusion was careful, Paying good players, great player money. So is he a good player? For sure. Is he a great player? I don't know. And I think that when you ask yourself if you're going to pay Dak Prescott, 
you know, this is an ongoing conversation that we're having during this year, the same way that the Cowboys are having this conversation as well and have been having it. Is, is, and here's a good here's a good reply underneath that is the only other quarterback to throw for zero yards and complete zero passes on third down this season is Patrick Mahomes versus Detroit in Week Four. So that that's that's worth pointing out. And I mean I know that win loss record is not a stat, and I know things like that, but we're we're looking at this team now. We're looking at the Cowboys, and I don't think anyone right now could. Could, could deny the Cowboys have, when you're looking at their skill position players, arguably one of the top five skill, arguably, they're one of the top five skill groups in the league. They have Amari Cooper, they have Michael Gallup, they have Randall Cobb as their third receiver. And I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm, 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 um, I'm not saying Randall Cobb's the best receiver in the league. I'm not saying these guys are blow-the-doors-off kind of players, right? But when Randall Cobb's your third receiver, that's a, that's a good offense. Uh, he's averaging 42 yards per game in five games. Amari Cooper, 102 yards per game over five games. Michael Gallup, 113 yards per game in three games. We're talking about an offense that has elite players there at, at wide receiver. It has, it has Jason Witten back and Blake Jarwin Devin Smith even has 113 yards in four games. So, and I, part of that is Dak Prescott. But what I'm saying here is that we've got we're looking at an offense that has great pass catchers. Ezekiel Elliott averaging 77.2 yards per game. That's on pace for probably about um, I think that's over 1,200 rushing yards. Tony Pollard is averaging 33.6 yards. And this is a big question as to why you why you signed Ezekiel Elliott to a massive deal because Tony Pollard is is Averaging four point nine yards per game, uh, per per carry, more more than Elliott. And I'm not saying he's better than Elliott. I'm not saying any of that. But there's other alternatives to paying Ezekiel Elliott almost fifteen million dollars a year. So, from all these perspectives, is um, you know how does he play against top competition? And 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 you know his offensive line is great. His defense, the Cowboys' defense, is currently ranked sixth in the NFL in points allowed and yards allowed. We're looking at a, a, a great roster. Um, they're first in offensive yards. Part of that is, of course, due to Dak Prescott. But a large part of that is also due to Kellen Moore and the offense he's calling currently. So this always comes. This often comes back to the, the one of the big statements I've been kind of saying this offseason for me is that we've really got to look at how valuable an offensive coordinator is and kind of look at that and look at your head coach being your offensive coordinator as, you know, if, if Kellen Moore gets a head coaching offer this year, get rid of Jason Garrett and hire Kellen Moore as your, as your head coach. Or pay Kellen Moore a boatload of money to keep him as your offensive coordinator and make him the head coach in waiting. So uh, there, there's, there's a lot more that goes into offensive performance than just a quarterback, and I think that that's a question that more people are raising today. Now, do I think Dak Prescott's a great quarterback? Yes. Do I think the Cowboys... And here's, here's the question you've got to ask yourself. Is do I think the Cowboys are still going to be in a position to compete for Super Bowl with Dak Prescott making what he wants, $40 million a year? I don't know. But that's a, that's a big question the Cowboys have to answer this, this year. And it's a big question to continue to explore, right? And, and all this goes into how much a player signs for and why. Because that 
right there, how he plays against top competition is probably something that that is impacting how Jerry Jones perceives, you know, how he perceives Prescott because he threw for 463 yards yesterday. You know, if you're if you're looking at yardage totals, just like people who looked at yardage totals for Jared Goff against the Bucks and said it was a great game. Prescott, three interceptions yesterday. So, um, you know, all these things go into how much a player signs for and why. It's a, it's an interesting conversation to continue to have. It, I've never kind of put all these things down on paper and, and just express them. So, um, you know, let me know. Give me some feedback on what you think should be added here. And, um, you know, get we'll, we'll, we'll get more. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about them on the next podcast and see if there's any additions that I've missed. And we'll also get into, uh, you know, there was some interesting stuff to talk about this, this weekend. Jay Gruden just got fired. And there's a, there's a conversation to have there about bad quarterbacks and putting yourself in that position and, and why some teams go into paying these quarterbacks expensive money despite, you know, a Joe Flacco, despite like knowing that Joe Flacco is not going to perform for you. Why do you go out and trade for Joe Flacco if you're the Broncos? You know, like you gotta, th- I, you gotta think of every single angle of why the team might be doing this. And another reason too is is when you look at some of these organizations that the quarterback is the biggest value driver for an organization outside the head coach and offensive coordinator. So it probably goes head coach, offensive coordinator, and the front office. Those are probably the three top guys. You know, GM, front office meaning GM and the team behind him. They're driving value, but then right behind that, and the biggest investment that you can make is the quarterback, and that drives incredible value. And I think part of the reason that teams will spend so much on quarterbacks is partially due to the fact that if you spend big money on a quarterback, you're putting yourself in a position. If you have a veteran that's any that's halfway decent, you're putting yourself in a position to be eight and eight, putting yourself in a position to be relevant, a spot where ESPN is going to talk about you. You're, you know, you're just relevant, and that helps increase your notoriety as an organization, and puts you in that position where, um, you know, your, your, the value of your franchise continues to increase, which I think is really the main driving factor for all these coach, uh, for all these owners, and of course it is, right? Of course it's the main driving factor, and the only reason that they care about winning Super Bowls is because Super Bowls lend themselves to increasing value. So, a lot of interesting stuff that we've seen the last few weeks. Look forward to sharing more of it. Thanks for uh, stopping by and listening to this. And again, you can follow me at Zach Moore NFL. You can support the podcast at Zach with a K. You can support the podcast with um, a purchase of Caponomics Building Super Bowl Champions on Amazon. Or you can donate to go.rallyup.com slash forgotten to support Justin Wren's Fight for the Forgotten in the All Heart Blitzalytics Fantasy Football League. And you can also buy, if you're into jujitsu, you can buy a jujitsu planner. And 10% of all proceeds will go to Justin Wren's Fight for the Forgotten. And um, that'll be it for this week. And look forward to you talking to you either later this week or next week.